Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome back. Here's why you should watch today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Everything's on sale says a business partner of Reddit co-founder as they launch a crypto fund. We'll discuss what opportunities some investors see despite a wider market downturn. Plus, we're going to do a deep dive into DeFi or decentralized finance. In that regard, Luca Mussini from Avantgarde Finance talks about the current state of DeFi and what can we learn from recent failures. We'll break this conversation down for you into some key takeaways. My name is Paul Guerra and with me we have, as always, Ash Bennington. Don't forget to subscribe and smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm or join us on the Real Vision platform. Now, let's get right into the latest price action. So, the crypto market cap is, as a whole is getting close to $1 trillion again, sitting at around $990 billion. The two biggest cryptocurrencies have stabilized after briefly dipping below key psychological levels. Bitcoin is trading back above $20,000 after falling below that level late yesterday, and its market dominance is at 39.2%. Similarly, with Ethereum, it went below $1,500, but it's back above that threshold. Ash, what else are you seeing in the market? Well, you know, in its latest note, Glassnode points to a persistent weakness in near-term markets. The blockchain analytics platform has a rather ominous headline in its latest note, quote, Bitcoin barely hanging on. Glassnode says prices are falling even when there's little sell-side pressure. Demand remains weak, and some investors are happy to take any opportunity to dash to the exits. Also, Coindesk points out that we should expect a lot of volatility in the near term. It's using data on perpetuals sourced from Decentral, Park, Capital, and Glassnode to form that outlook. Perpetuals are futures with no expiration date. Ether and Bitcoin's perpetual futures open interest ratios hit levels above 0.03 and 0.02, respectively. That's the highest open interest leverage ratio on record. Here's how that metric is calculated, Paul. It divides the amount of dollars locked in open perpetual futures contracts by the market capitalization of the underlying cryptocurrency. The ratio represents the degree of leverage relative to the market size. The greater the degree of leverage relative to the market size, the bigger the risk of liquidation injecting volatility into markets, Paul. Thank you, Ash. And we've also seen a rare move by a long stagnant crypto whale. Data track, tracked by a look into Bitcoin.com shows more than 5,000 Bitcoin that was dormant for at least seven years, that's back from 2015, has been moved earlier this week. The look into Bitcoin founder says that historically moves like that have indicated increased volatility to the downside, which brings us to our top story today. And that is everything is on sale. Reddit founder Galaxy Digital and Genesis executives raise big money. And yes, big money, Ash, when everything is on sale in crypto, when you hear a statement like that, you sit up and you look who's talking. 
According to a report by the information, it comes from a founding partner at 776. And 776 is a venture capital firm run by Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian. And according to the information, um, he's seeing big opportunities in the crypto market right now and is looking to raise nearly $177.6 million. Why that amount, you might ask? Does the number 1776 ring a bell? Well, 1776 is the year that the U.S. Declaration of Independence was signed. Ash, what is he up to? Well, what he's up to is capitalism. Uh, look, Alexis <laughs> O'Hanian is a very smart guy. He's got a long track record out in the Valley as an investor, uh, as a successful investor. And what he's up to here uh, is speculating on the price of assets being depressed below their true value. Obviously, this is a challenging and subjective view. How do you come up with what something's true value is? Mark Yusko and I have actually talked about that on this show. The idea that price is a liar, that you have small, thinly traded issues, uh, or you have a small you know, exchange relative to the total asset base and you have some distortions in price, Alexis clearly thinks that there's some bargains to be had. And so he wants to raise some dry powder, wants to raise some capital, go out into the market, step in and start buying those cryptocurrencies at prices that he believes are below the fundamental value there, Paul. Yeah, it seems like he's being greedy when other people are being fearful. But Ash, I'm trying to really understand is why these investors think it is a good time to raise funds and invest big money, but big money into crypto when we're hearing so much about this prolonged crypto winter. How could they possibly make any money with this? Well, Paul, you nailed it. You actually said it right there, this idea of being greedy while others are being fearful. That's the bet. That's the gamble. That's what capitalism is about. It's about speculation uh, at times, about when you see assets that you think are underpriced, you want to go out and buy them at those prices. It's easy to be greedy when everyone is greedy. It's easy to be fearful when everyone is fearful. Sometimes, obviously, it takes a little bit of nerve to wade into the markets when you see them in a winter period and to go in and say, hey, I really believe uh, that these assets, the underlying, the true value of these assets is significantly higher than what they're trading in the open market. So I'm going to step in and make those purchases. By the way, we should say that's a risk. He's making a bet. That's what capitalism is all about. That's what great investors do when they succeed. We're going to have to see how this one shakes out, Paul. 100%. Thanks, Ash. And clearly, there are still opportunities out there, but it's a very different playing field if you are a retail rather than institutional investor. And here's another example of a big crypto player making waves right now, but this time in Asia, which brings us to our next story. Temasek to lead 100 million funding for crypto landlord Animoca brands. And the Singapore state-run investment holding Temasek is investing in Hong Kong-based Animoca brands. Ash, please explain what is Animoca brands and what they are getting the money for. Well, Animoca started off as a small gaming company. According to BlockWorks, it has since grown into the largest blockchain investment unit in Asia. That's obviously a considerable accomplishment. Its portfolio now holds some 340 companies, including metaverse platforms. According to Bloomberg, Temasek will lead the financing through convertible bonds. The raise comes shortly after Animoca Brands Japan received $45 million from MF. 
MUFG Bank. Uh, that's Japan's largest bank uh, to increase its Web3 footprint in the country last week. Uh, Animoca Brands also secured $75.3 million in July, uh, the second part of its $360 million raise from January this year, led by prominent venture capitalists such as Sequoia and the Winklevoss twins. Also, I think, uh, notable here is the idea that this is a state-run, a sovereign wealth fund that's investing in this space. Lots to unpack in the story. It's an interesting one. Lots to unpack and lots of money, that's for sure. So no, don't forget, look out for Raul's upcoming interview with Animoca co-founder Yatsiu. It releases on September 9th, so you know, mark that on your calendar. It is part of Raul's Adventures in Crypto series. Don't forget to subscribe for free on Real Vision Crypto to watch it. Our next story is, I'm sure you'll love this one, Ash. Stablecoin issuer Tether dismisses Wall Street Journal's claim of inadequate reserves. And now, this is a question that seemingly never, but really never goes away. How safe is Tether, the largest stablecoin by market cap? The company that issues Tether has issued a statement rejecting the findings in a Wall Street Journal article. Ash, what did the original article say? And what was Tether's response? Well, the Wall Street Journal article said that a long-promised full audit of Tether's account is likely still months away. It also pointed out uh, that its assets, Tether's assets, outweigh its liabilities by just $191 million on August 25. So that means a 0.3% drop in asset values would tip Tether into an event of technical insolvency. Uh, Tether has rejected the Wall Street Journal article, perhaps not surprisingly, calling it, quote, disinformation uh, with a series of, quote, unsubstantiated conclusions. Tether also says its business is profitable, safe, and its account transparency is increasing, Paul. Mm. Well, I know this is something that you've talked about here extensively before, but Ash, what are your thoughts about all of this? What do you make of this? You know, you're exactly right, Paul. This is the same old question. This is the challenge uh, that we're going to talk about, I think, a little bit more when we talk about stablecoins later in this show. But the idea here is it's the challenge of verifying assets that are off-chain. Look, here's the here's the basic challenge. If you want a stablecoin to be stable in U.S. dollars, uh, the only way that you can ever really be sure it's going to be stable in U.S. dollars, at least in my view, uh, is to hold U.S. dollar-backed assets. Okay, great. But what's the challenge? Well, the challenge is that dollar-backed assets cannot be held natively on chain. That means you need this interim step of audits and attestations. You need accountants to come in and verify that the dollar-backed collateral is, in fact, precisely what the company says it is, what the holding company says it is, uh, that the collateral is in place, that it's stable, that it hasn't been sold, all of these things. These are very much traditional finance functions. And right now, Paul, we're still at a point in the crypto ecosystem where we need that bridge between traditional finance on the one hand in terms of dollar-denominated or fiat-backed stable coins and the underlying assets that support them. That's what this is all about. This has been an ongoing challenge here, obviously, for some stable coins. Tether is one that's gotten a lot of uh, publicity. I try not to take public uh, opinions on this because I'm not a researcher. I don't myself delve down into those assets and do that. But the folks at the Wall Street Journal here, I think the story is, have come out and said, hey, we've done just that. And according to the journal article, they see some serious challenges with Tether's solvency position, Paul. 
That's right. And the uncertainty around Tether and its transparency specifically is just one ongoing concern when it comes to stable coins. We've obviously seen one of the biggest ones uh, with Terra UST recently implode. So still stable coins play a crucial role in the world of decentralized finance or DeFi. Yeah, so I would just Ash, add, by the way, yes. if, if the Wall Street Journal's article is taken at face value, it isn't just transparency. They're claiming that their challenges with perhaps potentially in the view of the journal, the underlying fundamental solvency of Tether, which obviously is a very big deal. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That is a really big deal. We'll see how it unfolds. So actually, speaking about this topic, uh, Ash, you spoke with Luca Mussini, the head of business development at the Vanguard Finance, a DeFi company. And you asked him about the current state of DeFi and its shortcomings. Let's take a look. We've seen certain CeFi practices, uh, 3AC, uh, Celsius, that certainly have obvious shortcomings. Um, I think, uh, you know, these type okay, of let cases- me ask, Let me ask you real quick to just define what you mean by CFI here, because I know that there's sometimes confusion with DeFi, CFI, and TradFi. Are you defining uh, the Celsiuses of the world uh, as CFI platforms for the purposes of this conversation? I do, actually. I, d I define CFI as those type of players that uh, use blockchain uh, native solution in the backend, but they have like more uh, traditional finance type of interfaces and, and onboarding experiences. So they sort of combine one, one thing with the other, but without giving the uh, benefit of the transparency uh, and the mm. accountability that DeFi typically does. So uh, that's where the problems uh, arise because uh, those type of things uh, we've seen like uh, the depositors uh, injecting funds in, th in those type of platforms and then, uh, you know, yield generation, which is totally opaque. Uh, users don't really know what's what's going on behind the scenes. And then those kind of things, th those kind of solutions that become easily house of cards that, you know, end up collapsing and creating even like uh, more uh, far reaching consequences and implications like shockwaves around uh, the whole ecosystem. So this is something that I think should be, uh, uh, you know, definitely categorically avoided in the future. And I think we have a better solution now. We, we, I mean, we already did, but I think this shows the importance of having more decentralized solutions and, and more native uh, DeFi uh, platform, DeFi protocols. Um, it's true that, that uh, um, uh, C5 players don't have an immediate uh, incentive to move towards uh, towards uh, DeFi solutions because they think that opacity or that kind of lack of transparency is a sort of competitive edge towards their competition. Uh, but I, but I also think, from my own perspective, uh, you know, I'm I'm business developer at Avangard, which is the core developer of Enzyme. I see more and more uh, CFI, well, what I define as CFI players, coming to talk to us because they understand that uh, transparency transparency is not a, a shortcoming or or a, a possible vulnerability. It's actually rather uh, the, the most effective uh, marketing tool that they could have because the market is starting to get smarter more mature and it's starting to demand this type of transparency and accountability that it wasn't given before so i think this is a great uh, this is a great trend that we're, we're starting to see and we're excited about what we can offer to these type of players 
So Ash, definitely transparency and accountability are vital for retail investors, especially in 2022 with everything that has transpired. But Ash, Lucas states that DeFi is safer in that regard than, uh, sorry, that DeFi is safer in that regard than CeFi. What do you make of that? Well, let's unpack this a little bit here. So first, I, I want to distinguish between TradFi, CFI, and DeFi. I actually uh, asked Luca about this during the conversation. TradFi, I think of as traditional finance. These are regulated banks. Uh, DeFi is the direction in which we're moving. Uh, obviously, these totally decentralized platforms uh, that we're, we've been talking about here uh, on Real Vision. And CFI is this kind of interim step. It's this this kind of not quite fish or fowl. This is uh, things like uh, Celsius and Voyager would be examples of this. By the way, there are some CFI firms that are still solvent, so I don't want to paint them all with a brush and make it seem as though uh, every one of these has collapsed. But let's get to the core question here, which is, is DeFi safer uh, than CFI? Let me let me let me say it this way. I think the risks there are are very different. So CFI has what I would call Lehman Brothers risk. Uh, the idea here is that you have uh, risk management failures, failures by fallible human beings uh, to do things like provide adequate collateral. Uh, think about doing things like underwriting loans properly. These are all sort of very much traditional financial functions. Uh, we could say we saw these during the 2007-2008 era in terms of the failures and collapses that we saw there. By the way, you could also say you saw these types of failures during the 1929 era. These are very much traditional financial problems that we see in the CFI space. So that's one sort of layer of risk. But the question is, is DeFi safer? So I would say, on the other hand, you have different kinds of risk uh, in DeFi. For example, just to name a couple, and we've talked about it here on this show before, you have bridge hacks, you have flash loan attacks. We've talked about many of these stories before. The Ronin bridge exploit, $650 million loss. The wormhole network exploit, $320 million loss. Beanstalk Farms flash loan attack, 180 plus million dollar loss. So, you know, there's a lot of risk in all of this stuff. I've said it here before, ICBTR, it's cool, but there's risk. This is an important thing that anyone who's watching this show really needs to understand. If you want to know what's safe, FDIC backed deposits, right? $250,000 per depositor per bank. Uh, tips, treasury inflation protected securities uh, guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States government and index for inflation. But that's boring, right? Like that's yep. the response. But the reality here, Paul, is those are the trade-offs. Finance, economics, fundamentally about trade-offs. So what's safe? You know, FDIC backed deposits are safe. Chips are safe. Everything else, there's speculative risk in. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but people really need to go into this with their eyes open. They need to understand that there are no guarantees anywhere in the crypto space, Paul. That's right, Ash. And the facts that you stated are mind-blowing. That's more than $1 billion in losses just from those attacks. But those are experiences that we can learn. So actually, let's check out our next clip about what can we learn from high-profile failures. It's clear that uh, cases like Terra uh, are, are, you know, um, especially Terra with the case of UST, 
has shown that the difficulty of having having and maintaining successfully algorithmic stablecoins, for example, it, I'm actually uh, of the opinion that uh, you know at some point we will have this type of, of algorithmic stablecoins and will be uh, that will be successfully run in a decentralized manner. Uh, but when you have uh, um, you know, when you have this type of uh, collaterals that are that are highly volatile and that can be uh, subject to to uh, market swings uh, that are, can be extreme in certain circumstances, especially when you have a, a type of bank run like happen like it happened for for Terra, you cannot you cannot uh, you you have uh, you have to keep in, into account that uh, those those kind of risks uh, exist. Um, when you have in in, uh, in, in it's, it's actually today's discussion in, the, in this recent discussion, uh, for example, on MakerDAO, like what type of uh, you know collateral have, uh, you know can be used uh, for DAI? What uh, what is the maximum collateral? Uh, what the maximum uh, percentage for each type of collateral? This is like what some of the some of the ongoing discussions are happening in the community right now. So it's clear that uh, you know. Um, you have to dis distinguish uh, if you if we if we want to tune in a bit in, more into stable coins, we have to distinguish between more centralized stable coins, which will which we see today have some also some some shortcomings in terms of uh, censorship resistance, uh, and and also like the, the and and on the other side having this, the decentralized or uh, you know, yeah more co over collateralized de decentralized stable coins that of course need to have uh, need to have uh, you know like uh, project founders need to uh, really think about how uh, about the solidity and the, uh, the the resiliency of those collaterals over time so what is it that makes something central decentralized versus centralized you mentioned die for example there give us a little bit of context uh, around these ideas and how to distinguish them because i think particularly for people who are relatively new to the space they all sound very similar yeah i think it's um you know if i if i were to speak to somebody like you know like my father who actually always asked me this type of questions um you know i would define like a centralized uh, stable coin as as uh, as a type of stable coin that is back to a real world uh, fiat uh, currency that is uh, held somewhere uh, you know with with a certain degree of transparency we we, we see some cases where uh, the, the reserves are more or less uh, transparent but let's say the basic idea is to have them pegged to uh, to uh, to to some dollars or like uh, you know short term kind of instruments uh, you know in more like in the traditional finance so this is actually uh, definitely a vector of centralization um, mm -hmm. and on the other hand uh, you have crypto assets uh, really backing for backing the uh, the issuance the, the technically called minting which is the creation of new uh, stable coins like the case of Dai or the case of the new uh, for example the new stable coin which is uh, I mean there's there's a bunch of stable coins that uh, that are being created in DeFi. I think the most prominent are, are Dai, Dai, certainly Dai. There's also another one that Ave has been uh, has been discussing in the forum. So there are certainly prominent uh, protocols in uh, in DeFi that are coming up with these type of solutions, and and it's uh, certainly something that uh, we we like to see. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's almost this this paradox or this divide in the space. You talk about dollar denominated or dollar backed stable coins, and the, the the sort of interesting thing about that with regard to the blockchain is there's no way, obviously, to hold dollars natively on chain. So you have to have this interim step where you have attestations or audits of the organization that holds those coins in order to confirm that there is, in fact, a one to one correspondence between dollars or dollar equivalents uh, on one hand. Uh, and that is really an interesting sort of uh, dynamic that happens in the pace. It can't be done totally straight through. You mentioned DAI, obviously MakerDAO, uh, a different model. Tell us a little bit about how 
you think about those and how you sort out the advantages and disadvantages of each of these sort of very divergent types of stable coins. Well, I think that um, uh, it's clear that there's no there's no perfect solution, right? So there's no there's no uh, there's no one one thing one solution that that actually can can capture um, it, because we if we think about uh, we at Avantgarde we have like some treasury management mandates and so we have to thoroughly consider like which assets we select uh, for 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 those managed accounts and so um, definitely we look at uh, at the uh, the collateralization of uh, of, of uh, decentralized stable coins as one of the uh, one of the most important factor which is on the, in this case it's actually very transparent and it's on chain so that can be uh, thoroughly verified which is definitely an advantage of defi and on the other hand you have uh, but that collateral, however, might have a bit more volatility, and that's the that the con on, on that side. And on the on the on the more the more centralized solution, definitely you have you have uh, the what you call the attestation, which is also meaning that you have to trust a third party uh, to 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 actually issue those reports reliably. And also you have certainly like uh, something that is uh, that is uh, not. Exactly, uh, like the, uh, like the ethos of the ecosystem, which is the decentralization. You have that 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 part, which is uh, uh, which is not exactly in line. So uh, we we look at uh, we look at the, all these factors, and we uh, we try to uh, to assess the risk of each of each solution, and 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 then determine like which assets we we should we should be investing. That was just a great clip from Luca, and I really appreciate his insights. And undoubtedly, Terra's implosion affected the crypto industry as a whole. In fact, it's late August, and we're still talking about algorithm stablecoins. Ash, in layman's terms, what are the risks of stablecoins overall, and what did Luca mean by the resiliency of the collateral in decentralized stablecoins? Well, that's a great question, Paul. You honed in really on the key issue here. You know, first, the important thing to say is there are different types of stable coins. First, we have the fiat-backed stable coins. These are things like Terra USDT, Circle USDC. We talked about this, obviously, a little bit at the top of the show. The risks here are associated with the collateral actually being there. Uh, you know, this idea that you need audits and attestations, these traditional finance methods of verifying that the assets are in fact in place because again you can't hold dollar backed assets on chain so that's one type of stable coin and one sort of category of risk the second type of stable coin are collateral backed on-chain assets. The most prominent of these, the one that people probably know, is DAI. Uh, if you look at the DAI chart, it's got a really solid track record for the last two years here. DAI is over-collateralized. I believe the collateralization ratio is 150%. That's the ratio of collateral backing the asset to the face value of the asset. There are different flavors of these DAI coins. For example, there's ETH-A and ETH-B. Uh, they have different liquidation ratios, different fee schedules. I know this gets a little bit complicated as we wade into the weeds, but the key points here really are this. DAI has been pretty stable here, uh, as I said, for the last two years. But, and it's a big but, if the price of the underlying collateral moves dramatically against you, there's liquidation risk. That's the risk of breaking the buck, losing principal, losing money. Again, it's not an FDIC insured deposit or a government bond. So there's risk here. Another type of stablecoin uh, is these commodity-backed stablecoins. There are two pretty well-known examples here, uh, Tether Gold, X-A-U-T, and Paxos Gold, sometimes called PaxG, P-A-X-G. Uh, the way that these stablecoins work, I'll give you the example from Paxos. 
Uh, one coin equals one ounce of gold. Sounds great. You know that you're secured by an ounce of gold. Uh, if you if you trust the validation that it is in fact there, again, from a traditional source like an audit uh, or an attestation. But guess what? The value of gold fluctuates. That means the value of your coin fluctuates. So once again, no such thing as a free launch. Finally, we've got algorithmic stable coins. This is what Terra USD was. This is the most prominent example, of course, in the space you mentioned at the top of this segment. Uh, it was allegedly stable at a dollar, and then it got absolutely annihilated. You know, these basically coins use math. They use some uh, trading functions. Uh, they use a whole series, and it differs by the individual uh, algorithmic stable coin, but they use a whole different sort of series uh, of of computer-based ways of algorithmically attempting to maintain that stable balance. To me, and I've said this here on Real Vision before, these are very much science experiments. So science advances the frontiers of our knowledge. Science is a great thing. But sometimes the test tubes explode, and sometimes when the test tubes explode, the lab burns to the ground. People really need to understand it. They need to understand the risks as they look at these exciting new technologies, Paul. That's right, Ash, and I love the analogy. It's very visceral and very graphic, and yes, as you say, risk. We have to consider it always, especially talking about crypto. And right. given the situation in the crypto market right now, Ash, it's easy to make an assumption that there's little TradFi interest in DeFi right now. But Luca Mussini says that's not the case. Let's listen. I'm having more and more conversation with traditional finance. And again, traditional finance, I would consider uh, folks that are really like uh, tied to the existing financial ecosystem and they have absolutely no uh, no touch points yet uh, with uh, with uh, DeFi or crypto in, in general. So I think this is uh, this is interesting to see that they're more and more interested. My, my self-question that I'd like to also to articulate a bit more my thoughts is, is it despite the downturn or is it because of the downturn? And I see like both dy dynamics playing out really well because on the one hand, I think it's uh, despite the, the, the downturn because it shows that um, their, their interest is, is kind of maturing over time. They're not just interested in Bitcoin anymore. They're interested in, 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 in Ethereum, but also like I would say more like deep down into like the solution. So it's not really an investment anymore. Uh, it's actually more like what kind of solutions is DeFi uh, you know, creating or like where, where is the innovation coming from and, and what can I do with it? And the, also like because of the, uh, coming back to the question, because of the downturn, because I think that this shows that some of them are really smart and are actually w waiting on the sideline, uh, waiting for the perfect moment to to jump into DeFi. I, I'm having conversation with uh, with asset managers that in precisely at this point in time, they want to start building a track record in DeFi, you know, then you know because they know that this will this will create powerful results over over time. Um, I think it's like it's, it becomes more and more clear to me having this conversation. It's, it's it's not a matter of if anymore; it's actually a matter of when. And uh, so it's, a, it's just a matter of picking the right timing for them. Um, it's also clear that um, institutions like TradFi is not really about cryptocurrencies only per se. It's more about um, how to get uh, tokenization mainstream, um, mm. and also like using blockchain as a as a new means of ownership rather than just an investment. I, I think uh, uh, I'm having conversation with them, talking about real world assets, for example, how to get these type of assets on chain. How to? I'm, I was actually having a nice conversation the other day uh, with a traditional finance player, and he goes like, 
I'm dreaming of a day when I actually can have like a, in, in the same portfolio, I, I can have like cryptocurrencies and I can have like tokenized solar farms in Dubai and uh, tokenized land crops in Argentina and, and tokenized fine wines from Italy. So all of these things coming together in the, into the same DeFi portfolio on chain, which is digital, which is global, which is easily transferable uh, and tradable. Um, you know, that, that, that's a dream that they have. And I think it's, we're, we're still not there, but uh, we will get there eventually at, at some point. Luca, how far are we away from realizing that dream? Uh, yeah, well, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's probably like closer than we think. I mean, it's, uh, it's a matter of like trying to, it's a matter of like innovating and bringing those assets on chain. Uh, like there's, there's, a, there's a frame in Europe, there's a framework for, for security tokens that is going to, uh, a sandbox framework that is going to be applicable next year, uh, starting 20, in March 2023. I think this will give a lot of, uh, a lot of push uh, to STOs in general. And, you know, that means that, you know, we can, we will be able to tokenize uh, compliantly and so we will be able to onboard project issuers and also investors will be able to uh, uh, trade primary like in a primary market and also in a secondary market with a certain amount of liquidity they will be able to trade those assets uh, in a very seamless ways on on DeFi. i think like there's three main check boxes that they need to uh to check uh one is security and you know 2022 has been one of the uh uh, record year for for hacks and exploits, and I think this is uh, this comes to show that security has to be uh, like a primary concern for 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 like like all all of DeFi. And we at Avangard's uh, Enzyme definitely we take uh, security as our uh, like foremost concern. Right. And second is compliance, so need, they need to have compliant ways uh, to uh, to onboard, to invest, to divest, to to trade uh, in a secondary market. And also the ease of use. Uh, we we gotta be honest. Some of them uh, have the uh, you know like uh, they have this uh, this barrier to entry in terms of the ease of use. DeFi uh, is is for the moment still for mostly for crypto natives. So it's it's not easy for everyone. And I think our job is to bridge them and to educate them to uh, how to how to get started. Great clip. I appreciate Lucas' input considering his background and expertise in decentralized finance. In that sense, what are your thoughts, Ash, regarding Lucas' comment that it's not a matter of if anymore, but a matter of when institutional investors go all in? Do you really see TradFi bringing tokenization of assets to the mainstream? Well, when it comes to the digitization of money, Paul, I think it's probably a question of if and not when, but it's also a question fundamentally of how. To me, it's a safe bet that if we were to get into a time machine and come back in the year you know, 2032 or 2042, digital money, internet money is going to play a much bigger role in finance and commerce in all of our lives, generally speaking, than it does today. But the question really is, to me at least, is what form will that take? Uh, let me give you a, a concrete example here of, of why I think this is very much an open question. One form of stablecoin that I did not mention in the prior segment, because it doesn't exist yet uh, at scale, is CBDCs. These, of course, are central bank digital currencies. We don't know what role, for example, they're going to play in the system. And obviously, if and when a central bank does weigh in and create digital money, that will be an extraordinary event. So for me, I lean more toward the future of finance of internet money being decentralized. This means based on things like 
Bitcoin and Ethereum and and the types of decentralized distributed networks uh, that that Luca is talking about here. You know, I cover them. I'm passionate about them. I'm passionate about this ecosystem. I love the culture. I love the key people in this space. But does that mean 100% that the future will definitely be decentralized? The answer to that question, if we're being honest with ourselves, is that we just don't know, right? I, I think that one of the cardinal rules of, of finance is understanding uh, that you can't confuse what you hope with what you think is likely to occur. So is di di digitization coming? I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes. Is programmable internet money coming? I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes. Will the future of digital programmable money be decentralized? That's a potentially exciting future, and I think perhaps a probable one. But is it certain? No, it's not certain. In reality, nothing in this universe is certain. And we need to maintain that level of skepticism, I think, when we talk about these exciting new technologies, Paul. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. That's right. Healthy skepticism. But, well, nothing is certain in this universe except from death and taxes. Not to get too dark into this. But the word decentralized is key, Ash, to understanding DeFi and the wider crypto market. But one aspect of that is DAOs, or Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. Here's what Lucas has to say about them. What we define is like the, the, the DAOs, you know, have ways to, uh, you know, they once once they start, they, they typically uh, issue their governance tokens. And then from there on, they can start diversifying or accruing revenues because we see already some, some uh, DAOs that have found like a clear uh, product market fit, and they're able to capture some of the value accrual, some of the revenue accrual, and therefore they they sort of accumulate and build up more and more, more and more treasuries. Um, the majority of them, unfortunately, they they for number one, they keep eighty. Uh, there was actually a study from Chain Analysis uh, recently that that uh, found out like ninety percent they keep like on average is held in their governance token, which obviously has huge price swings, uh, drawdowns of like 90 percent. So of course that affects. The, the ability of those DAOs to fund themselves in perpetuity, which is actually should be uh, the goal of a, of, a, of a professionally managed DAO. Uh, so for me, uh, it has become, or it, it is very clear from all the conversation I'm having, that treasury management for a DAO is an integral part uh, of any project long-term success. And so uh, they have to start thinking about how to manage their short-term cash and how to uh, how to also degenerate some uh, some income from those from those, those treasuries because the, the in the best case most of them they diversify into uh, stable coins which is already a good step uh, but then they leave those uh, those stable coins idle which is just you know taking inflation at uh, eight ten percent rates per year at this point so so obviously this is not I, I think this is not good enough for for many of them uh, and i think one of the things is that most most of them think that uh having a uh, like a delegated management of because of course you need professionalism you need skill set in order to do like proper uh, treasury management so i think like some of them are starting to to uh, to create their own treasury uh, uh working group and you know having the ability to to delegate to those to those groups but some of them still think that 
uh, having this delegation equals giving up custody of their funds and like like in fear that the, those funds will be uh, stolen or lost uh, or taking huge risks and i'm here to say actually um you know give me a 30 seconds for enzyme this is like exactly the kind of uh, the kind of point that we saw because we give the ability to a DAO to uh, own their own assets and and you know own their own uh, vault their their in custody their, their own funds and at the same time being able to effectively delegate to a third party manager and they can appoint that person and they can say, you can only touch these assets, you can only touch these protocols, and I have the oversight over what you're doing 24-7, and I have complete transparency on the overall activity, which is exactly having, having this uh, kind of pain point resolved immediately. So DAOs is one of those hot topics in DeFi, Ash. However, it's something that the average crypto investor has not fully incorporated yet. Ash, what do you really think that Luca meant by a DAO's governance token? How do they play a role in an investor crypto portfolio? Well, I think that's exactly right. I think it's important to understand what DAOs are before you can understand what a governance token is. So, so DAOs are these decentralized autonomous organizations. That's what the acronym stands for. Uh, and it's a new way of forming an organization, a new way of creating uh, and managing capital, a uh, new technology that facilitates these sort of distributed, decentralized decision-making. I, I know this can sound a little abstract, so let me just give some examples here to make it a little bit more concrete. Uh, Maker, we talked earlier about... Uh, the stablecoin DAI in a previous segment. DAI is an ERC-20 token. Uh, the crypto collateral for DAI, remember it's a collateral-backed, crypto collateral-backed stablecoin. The crypto collateral for DAI is locked in a smart contract in MakerDAO's collateral vault. So that's one example. Another example of this would be Aave. Aave is a pretty well-known lending platform in the DeFi space, uh, lending, borrowing, yield generation, all of those kinds of functions. I've actually interviewed the founder, uh, Stanley Kolachev, on Real Vision before. So if that's something you're interested in, if you're interested in learning more uh, about uh, about Aave, please go and sign up for Real Vision Crypto. It's free. Uh, you can, if you're not already watching on platform, if you're watching us on YouTube or on Twitter. Uh, and then there's Uniswap. So Uniswap is a DEX. This is a decentralized exchange. This is an exchange uh, where users can trade in and out of tokens, but they're not doing it with a centralized entity uh, like uh, like Coinbase, for example, or Kraken. They're doing it <clears throat> with a DAO in a truly decentralized format. Uh, the governance token for uh, Uniswap, to just give you one example, is called Uni, U-N-I. Uh, governance tokens are tokens that allow these DAOs to make collective decision-making, things like collateral ratios, liquidation ratios, service fees. Uh, in some ways, it's similar to the voting rights that are attached to common stock uh, in that you know the shareholders get to make decisions about how the organizations are run. But of course, these are decentralized. By the way, I should say, I think I own about 300 bucks worth of Uni. I bought it because I wanted to go and play around with, uh, with Uniswap. I haven't actually had the time to do it. Uh, but that's the way a governance token sort of broadly works uh, and why people are interested in them, because they really do represent the ability to make decisions in these decentralized autonomous organizations. Now, cynics, of course, will say that they're controlled by very large groups of uh, people, so they're, they're really not that decentralized. Uh, but that is a different debate. That's the idea behind a DAO, at least, Paul. Thank you so much, Ash. That really helps. And now, here's what I learned today and what the viewers can take away from your conversation with Luca Mossini. Well, first, according to Luca, DeFi has a three-component checklist to comply with before being massively adopted. First, security to prevent more hacks as the ones that occurred this year. Second, 
compliance with the regulators. And third, they need ease of use. And this ash is a common issue with the whole crypto industry. People still find many hurdles and hoops to jump through in order to use the apps, wallets, and crypto services. Another takeaway is that Terra's implosion and its effects are learning experiences for everyone and it only shows that we're still early. It is the lessons we learned from these experiences today that will cement the building blocks of a stronger crypto industry for the upcoming years. And as mentioned by Luca, initially TradFi was against crypto. We all remember what the Goldman Sachs was calling Bitcoin back in 2013 or so. So then it was skeptical about it. But its sheer value to society through blockchain solutions has made them not only accepted, but made many TradFi institutional investors to become key players in the market. And we'll hear definitely more from them in the upcoming months. And finally, the final takeaway here today is that according to Luca, DAOs suffer from high volatility in their governance tokens, making them high risk moves as Ash pointed. Ash is one of those themes that we talked a lot about in today's show. So remember, there's not such thing as a free meal, but they play an important role in a decentralized finance and where it's all going in terms of community decision making. Ash. We have here some viewers' questions. If you could please answer a couple of them. I have one here for you coming from Apex Crypto on YouTube. And Apex Crypto says, Do you think that the stablecoin regulations in the U.S. will come in the next 12 months? And if they do, will this spell trouble for most, if not all, stablecoins for U.S. markets? Well, you know, I think I'll take this in two different parts. So the first question really implicit is, is regulation coming for stable coins? I think the answer for that is almost certainly yes. We're looking at, obviously, uh, a significant percentage uh, of the value of cryptocurrency being tied up in these stable coins. These look like traditional functions that financial institutions would provide. Uh, the reality is this is going to get regulated. I think it's a, an almost a certainty that there's going to be additional regulation to this here in the United States. Second part of the question about whether it will happen in the next 12 months, you know, this is politics. Obviously, it's an election year. It's really difficult. I'm not a political analyst, uh, you know, to predict exact timeline for when this regulation is coming. But I think for me, Apex, it's a great question. Uh, and to answer it, yes, fundamentally, I believe we're going to see regulation and probably sooner rather than later. Thank you, Ash, and thank you, Apex, for such a great question. And actually, for all of you on YouTube, don't forget to hit the like button for the YouTube algorithm. Subscribe for you guys looking on the Real Vision platform. Also, hit the like button so we know which videos you're actually liking. And we have a question for you, Ash, from MCubed on the Real Vision platform. And it says, is running your own proof-of-stake ETH node a realistic proposition after the merge? It would be as near zero risk as you can get for staking, wouldn't it? Well, you know, I'm going to sort of uh, continue with some of the remarks I made earlier. Uh, this phrase, zero risk, uh, risk-free, I think these are very dangerous terms to use in crypto. The reality is this is a very volatile asset class, uh, and this is technology that, for example, doesn't yet exist uh, in, at scale in Ethereum. Obviously, Beacon Chain is currently running, uh, but this massive transition that we're going to see, uh, a huge, huge step function in terms of the number of dollars that are going to be held on that chain. The market cap of Ethereum now is around $200 billion, so we're going to see this massive shift. I just don't like this idea of zero risk, the idea of talking about things as though there's zero risk. The idea here with establishing staking is to create kind of a benchmark rate. Some people have called 
that the risk-free rate. I don't really think that's the best term to use, but it would be a benchmark rate that you could essentially use to peg uh, a base rate above which other riskier assets, in theory, could trade. We see this. Uh, folks who are in the fixed income space already know this. You have, for example, uh, the risk-free rate in Treasury bonds at a given tenor. That's the length of time uh, until the, the bond expires. And then corporate securities, for example, traded a risk spread over that. So you have to get a higher yield to compensate you for higher risk. I think that's what we're going to see starting to be established in the crypto space with the, that sort of benchmark rate being the Ethereum staking rate. But again, this is very early. It's very theoretical. It's very speculative. It's fascinating. The technology here is extremely cool, but we're going to have to wait and see how this shakes out. It's fascinating indeed. Thank you, Ash, for your answer. And here we have a last question for you coming from Shash Ankrai on YouTube. And it says, how can we get a sense which cryptos have the biggest downsides? Some of the projects have such low market caps or DJ in place, it is hard to see them go down. Well, you know, there's a lot of risk in this space in general. Um, you know, very often people, particularly people with financial backgrounds, want to extrapolate sort of the models that we see in traditional finance, particularly in U.S. equities. You'll hear them say things like, well, you know, Bitcoin is like a blue chip stock and and, um, and, you know, some of these micro cap cryptos, uh, these very small market cap cryptos uh, are more like they're like pink sheet stocks. And I don't really actually think that that metaphor is an apt one. The reality is these are very different spaces. What's interesting, of course, uh, is that, for example, blue chip stocks are obviously highly regulated. Uh, they're regulated by SEC. Uh, they have certain accounting requirements that they have to meet. There are independent auditing organizations like the Fair Accounting Standard Board that modifies the way uh, that I should say over oversees the way that their financial statements are written. It's just a totally different world. And even comparing uh, small cap cryptos to pink sheet stocks, I think is probably a mistake. The reality is pink sheet stocks are also regulated here in the United States. These are stocks that trade so-called OTC over the counter. They're not subject to the listing requirements of NYSE or NASDAQ. Uh, but the reality is that there's just a tremendous amount of risk in this space. And we've seen that just the massive swings on things like Dogecoin and Shiba. So I, I think the reality is that people need to understand that this is all an incredibly speculative space for investments. Uh, and when you get down to some of these small, very obscure market cap um, you know, cryptos, I think the risk probably increases. But there's risk just all across the board. Doesn't mean it's not cool. Doesn't mean it's not interesting. But people need to go into this understanding that they need to go into it with their eyes open, in, in my view, at least, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Ash Bennington, thank you so much for all your insights today. And well, that's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. Don't forget to comment, smash the like button, subscribe on YouTube, or tweet at us. Remember, this is your show. We make this for you guys. So we want to hear from you on what's working, what's not, what guests do you want to see, who do you would like to hear more from, what themes should we cover. And tomorrow we got Francis Hunt, a.k.a. the Market Sniper, with the latest technical analysis. Make sure to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto for free if you haven't already. So, well, see you tomorrow live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Thank you.